If a first responder starts talking about something, I can relate to that or I can validate that. And that's very difficult for, I mean, we've had instances where a first responder will sit down with a clinician and just kind of vomit their entire career. And that clinician will say, I can't help you. That's too much. And now I need to go to therapy because of what you just told me. So having a culturally competent therapist, but then also having a peer system to where you can say, dude, I get it. And I want to help you through it. You're going to have a whole lot more buy-in from the beginning. You're listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast where experts share experiences and the latest thinking on mental health and psychology. Here's your host, Gabe Howard. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Gabe Howard, and calling into the show today, we have Sheriff Jay Armbrister. Sheriff Armbrister has served the Douglas County Sheriff's Office for 24 years. As sheriff, he has made it a priority to support the mental health of law enforcement officers and all first responders. At the state level, he has testified before the Kansas State Commerce Committee in favor of a bill that would secure workers' compensation benefits for first responders diagnosed with PTSD. Sheriff Armbrister, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. I want to start by telling you that I'm the son of a now-retired semi-truck driver. And I want to share that growing up, my father refused to discuss his feelings. In in (laughs) fact, I don't believe that my father had any ability to recognize a looming mental health crisis in himself. And (laughs) even if he could, he wouldn't have accepted help for it if anyone else happened to notice. Now, for my father, the the stakes are just relatively low, right? Especially compared to law enforcement. My, My father doesn't carry a gun. He doesn't have the ability to arrest anybody. And all that said, I still saw firsthand how this toxic denial of his own mental health played out in his life. So I want to start with a bit of an uncomfortable question. Isn't it just good public policy to ensure that law enforcement officers and other first responders have access to the mental health care that they need just for the safety of the public they are serving? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think it should be the top priority. Especially in the today's day and age, we, we've seen so many examples of bad outcomes when it comes to law enforcement contacts with citizens. And I'm not saying that any of this is a fact of the matter, but maybe some of those officers were not in the right headspace or were not mentally healthy when they entered into those situations. And if an officer dislocates their shoulder during an arrest or a chase or a fight or something, that officer is sent to the doctor, they get x-rays, they're like, you need to be off work for X number of weeks and rehab it, and then you have to prove that you're able to come back when you're ready. But an officer suffers a a mental trauma, or in my case, a series of traumas, there's nothing for that. There's no x-rays, there's no nothing. And even sometimes when the officer says, I don't feel good, that agency will say, too bad, you got to get back out there, we need you. And nobody, nobody wants a mentally unhealthy officer on, on any call, much less one that their them or their family are going to be on, it only makes sense. I mean, there's nobody, <laughs> to, nobody will say, no, that guy should definitely still be working. No, they shouldn't. They need to be taken care of. And then when they're ready to come back to work, let's work through that. But it seems very, very simple. And you're absolutely right. It's It's just good public policy. When I hear your example, I'm pretending now that I'm a police officer. I'm, I want to be clear, I'm not a police officer, had no police training. <laughs> I, I do law enforcement right. training, so I know police officers, but that that's as, I'm like police officer, very, 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 very adjacent. But I'm thinking about it as a person. Let's say that I had a partner. I, I was a police officer. I had a partner. I, I, I'm out there policing. I, I have to do the police things. And my partner shows up and he's on crutches. And, and he's like, no, no, I got this. 
And I'm like, what do you mean you got this? And I, I think I, I don't I don't know if I want the person watching my back to be on crutches. And it gets even worse, though. See, crutches means that there has been some sort of treatment, right? There, there's a cast, there's crutches. But what if it was even worse? What if, uh, you know, they just show up limping? And I'm like, hey, did you get that checked out? No, I'm tough. I, I don't need this problem. Or what if it gets even worse? Hey, you're limping. No, I'm not. I'm not limping at all. And when people hear like that example, they think, wow, somebody needs to step in. Where, where's the commanding officer? Where's the lieutenant? Where's the boss? Where, where are just the other police officers are like, dude, what do you mean you, you can't tell that you're limping? All of that is completely non-existent in mental health. We, we know the people that we work with. We, we know when they, you know, they tell a lot of jokes and then suddenly they haven't told any jokes for a week, right? We, we know when their personalities shift dramatically. We, we, we see all kinds of examples of where they're just like snapping at people, yelling at people, and everybody thinks, well, I wonder what's up with him uh, or her, and then nothing, and then nothing yep. happens. Is that culture changing? You're absolutely right. And, th- and that's actually a very great example. I'm, I may even be stealing that from you, but it's a proven fact that we spend more time with our coworkers than we do with our families and our best friends and our close friends. We spend so much more time together that that kind of the colloquial, you know, we're a family, it's a brotherhood or sisterhood, it's fraternal. So that's absolutely spot on. But when it comes to how do we address this and how do we go about changing this, it's all about culture. It's about coming out and saying, this is something that we have to do, and it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way is kind of the saying that gets used. But for me, it was easiest to just use my own path, use my own story to let them know that I understand, I get it, here's what happened to me. And you would be so amazed with how many people are like, no kidding, I had that too, and I just thought it was me. And what we're trying to do is create a space where it's okay for for folks who are supposed to be the toughest amongst us to come forward and say, you know what, I think I do need some help. And then we we don't judge them. (laughs) We don't make fun of them. We were like, I'm so proud of you for saying that. Let's get moving on this. What do you need? And then we take it from there. Breaking down that toxic masculine, you know, get back in the saddle, tough guy on the block culture that we've been buried under for decades is tough. But I also think that as we see a new generation of police officers and deputies coming into the millennials, they are much more in tune with how they feel, and their their culture is different than maybe you and I and the folks that are older than us. So they're a little bit ahead of the game, but it's it's convincing the ones who maybe believe they kind of buy into that, I'm the police, I'm supposed to be the toughest guy here, and breaking them down and kind of showing them that it's okay to be human for just a minute. Um, I think that's the biggest victories that you can, you can have. And it all just starts with culture. It's all about creating that space for them to say, I need help or I'm not okay. I want to be the first person to say that I know unequivocally that television shows are not representative of law enforcement culture. I just, I, I want to make sure that, that you know that I know that before I ask this next question. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Every single law enforcement show from, from your law and orders to your NCISs, they always have this trope where there is an officer involved shooting, 
right? And and it doesn't even matter if if the the person that they shot dies or not. There's just an officer involved shooting, and then there's always this struggle. Okay, well you have to see the 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 shrink. Well, I don't want to see the shrink. That's stupid. Well, look, just policy. You have to. I can't believe that they're all over me. I hate this. And, and everybody argues, and and they they roll their eyes and they make it stupid. And uh, maybe they see the shrink on the show. Maybe they don't. But the point that I'm really getting at is in the public consciousness is this idea that even after a police officer shoots somebody, pulls their weapon, shoots somebody, the minute somebody's like, hey, I want you to talk to a mental health professional about shooting another human, law enforcement is like, forget it, I don't want to. I don't even want to answer a single question about shooting someone. Is that the culture inside? Because the public very much believes that law enforcement is just like, yeah, we shot you. We're good. Yeah. You, I mean, TV is, has created all sorts of chaos when it comes to the law enforcement and the judicial system. I mean, CSI tells you that, that we can solve a very complex case in an hour. You can get results back on DNA in 10 minutes. And that's just not the case. But you're absolutely right. And I'll tell you this is that the old saying is always, you know, two people can can hear the same same words, but come away with two different perceptions. Two officers or deputies can be involved in the exact same incident and come away with two completely different takes on how it went and how they're doing. Now, I do know that there are officers who have uh, expressed disinterest because they say they're fine. In fact, to the point there was a case detail and this, this trooper was telling the story about how he had to shoot somebody. And I asked him directly, what sort of mental health follow-up? What, what did you do for yourself? And he said, I didn't talk to anybody. I said, well, why not? And he said, well, who am I going to go talk to? Because I'm just pissed I didn't shoot him sooner. And right there, I realized that this person was not in a space <laughs> to, to seek out that help or would have entered into it and let it do its thing. Now, that is, I believe, to be the outlier. The rest of the time, they may say, man, I, I'm okay. I don't want to go and see anybody or let's just get this over with. But nine times out of 10, they get in that room and they talk about it. They get it off their chest. And then they may come out and even say, that didn't do any good. But deep inside, they know it did. But I also think that, again, that culture is changing as well because we talk about everything now. There's no reason not to talk about something as horribly traumatic as an officer-involved shooting or being shot at. In my experience and inside the system that I'm in here in you know Northeast Kansas, I think that we're in a good place. And I don't think that that stigma has stayed attached or is being mimicked as we maybe once thought or that people may think. I think that we're in just such a better place when it comes to, to talking about these things and creating that space for, for officers and deputies to do that. I think about the NFL and the NFL has what they call a concussion protocol. If you get hit in the head, they just go and check you out. You, you don't get an opinion. It's just they have determined that, that certain types of headshots or, or tackles or bumps, how, however you want to phrase it, just get you put into this concussion protocol. The end, no conversation. You can't play until it's done. So you, you might as well get it over with. And, and at first there was, well, we're tough football players. We don't care. And now we're a, a few years down the road and players just do it. They're just like, hey, you got to go to concussion protocol. Fine. And that they, they rush over. They go through the concussion protocol, they get cleared and they come back. Is there any kind of protocol for, I, 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 I unbuckled a, a, a dead body. I, 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 I found a dead body. There was a particularly 
a scary car crash. I, I just I think about the things that first responders see, and I think to myself, wow, do we need a mental health protocol? Or is it just like, hey, it's part of your job, you'll be fine? Well, that used to be the trope, <laughs> the the wording. You know, you would say, man, I just, you wouldn't believe what I saw or heard or smelt or felt last night. And people would say, man, that I know it sucks. That's just what we do. You know, if you don't like the smell of paint, don't be a painter. And that was definitely the culture. Well, now, and starting, I'd say probably 10, 15 years ago even, but it was a pretty slow start. What we do is here uh, specifically, if it's something that rises to the level where, where it's just outside of the normal operating procedures, or just daily grind, so to speak, what we'll do is we'll bring everybody together and anybody who was on scene or the dispatcher who was working behind the radio or anybody that was maybe called in later, we will bring them all together and we'll have what we call a critical incident debriefing. And what it is, you have a clinician, so somebody who is a a culturally competent clinician, such as a, a psychologist who deals with first responders, then you also have, you try to have clergy, somebody there that can help some spiritual aspects if needed, but then you have other peers. So like uh, we had an officer that was killed in a neighboring county. I went in as a peer because I'm a good ear and I understand the trauma of it, but I'm not connected to them, but I can come in as as another law enforcement officer and they immediately trust me a little bit more than you would just anybody. What we do is we just sit down and we talk about it. We talk about what you saw, what you felt, and then what you thought about it. We also do some educational pieces about how, you know, drinking is unhealthy, make sure you get some sleep and that kind of stuff. But we have found those to be unbelievably helpful. And the best thing that can happen in one of those is for somebody else in that room to open up, and then you can just watch the doors unlock all the way around. And next thing you know, everybody is talking about their deepest, darkest secret about how this really did bother them. And then once that meeting's over, if you need more help, we'll get you more help. But we've uh, created something that I feel is pretty special. But we've run into situations where you'll have an employee or even a, a law enforcement officer in mental crisis, like in a crisis, try to get them in to see a professional. And that professional will say, I can see him next Thursday. I'm like, well, you know, this guy's in the hospital right now because he was threatening to kill himself this morning. I can't wait till Thursday. In order to try to fix that, what we've done is we've created a contract with one, hopefully two now, culturally competent clinicians to where I basically purchase two to three hours out of their schedule every week. So those hours are there for me and my employees. And what my employees can do is, first off, if they just feel like they need to talk to her about anything, they can call and make an appointment and it doesn't cost them a dime. But it also creates a space for me to call her and say, I've got somebody that needs to be seen. And she then says, okay, either I'll be there or you can bring him here at three o'clock or take him or her to Dr. X because I can't do it. And she will find us somebody who can do it. So that's been very helpful. Um, and the usage of it has been tremendous. And uh, we're very proud of, and, and the cost of it is, it's not insignificant, but it's definitely worth it because you can't quantify what the cost really could be if something went wrong. I keep going back to my father as an example, and and here's why. When when I got sick, when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, I, I started seeing a therapist, and I, I felt really bad about it. And and I felt really bad because you know I wanted to be a man, right? I wanted to be like my dad, my my real tough dad. And I was very worried and embarrassed about telling him, but obviously I had to. So I I, I told my dad, I said, you know, I'm I'm 
I'm seeing a therapist. And my, my dad said, yeah, me too. And I said, wait, what? And he goes, yeah, I see a therapist. It started when your mom and I went to marriage counseling. So both of those things just, just floored me, right? My, my parents are in marriage therapy and my dad is now seeing a therapist on his own. And I did not know this. And I, I've asked him, you know, my father and I have had many conversations over the years about why this is. And he says, this isn't the kind of thing that you burden your family with. And I pointed out to him that, you know, I, I resisted talking to anybody getting help because I, I thought this was what I was supposed to do. You inadvertently put me in harm's way. My, my dad thought he was modeling strong morals and ethics. And in actuality, he was modeling, don't get help when you're sick, even though he was getting help when he was sick. Are the other law enforcement officers, are, are they modeling this? Or are they going quietly and keeping quiet? Or are they like, hey, I, I did this, it helped. What is this like in first responder and law enforcement culture? What you're describing uh, in a somewhat similar way is just the the whole peer aspect of what we're trying to do. When I was when I found myself in my position where you know I didn't want to live anymore and I just didn't understand what was going on and I was just angry and hurt and sad and all that stuff, <laughs> I didn't want to say anything because I looked around and I'm like, well, everybody else here has been through this same shit as I have, but they're fine. They seem fine. So what is wrong with me? You know, and that's that's so common. <laughs> that story is not mine, mine alone. But what it took was for somebody else in the business to be like, you need to go see somebody, and and here's who you need to go see because she deals specifically with first responders, and that's what I needed. I needed somebody who understood me and my world. And then what we do now is we bring that peer aspect. Gabe Howard here to tell you about the Inside Bipolar podcast from Healthline Media. He does the show with me, Dr. Nicole Washington, a board-certified psychiatrist. That's right. A guy living with bipolar and a psychiatrist team up to discuss living well with bipolar disorder. Listen now on your favorite podcast player or visit psychcentral.com slash IBP to learn more. Subscribe now so you don't miss out. And we're back with Sheriff Jay Armbrister discussing the mental health needs of law enforcement and other first responders. Now, you're the sheriff, so you, you really are modeling the way. As the leader of your department, you're telling people this is okay. You're providing the resources. You're helping your officers be better officers and live better lives. That is phenomenal. And I, I want to completely applaud you for being open with your story and leading by example and providing those resources. But of course, you're one sheriff. And there's, right. there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of you. Is this common across the country? And and here's why I ask. When when your pitch came across my desk, when we started talking and when I started researching, I thought this is going to be a great episode because it's rare. And that's when it hit me. Oh, it's rare. Like, I want this to be so common that when you were like, hey, Gabe, I want to come on your show and talk about how we're providing resources to law enforcement and, and first responders. I want to be like, yes, yeah, so what, what, what next? Do you want me to do a show on how water is being provided to the fire department? This is, right. this is nonsense, <laughs> but that, that wasn't the case. This is a compelling show because it is in fact rare. How do we get the rest of the sheriffs on board? How do we make this as common as giving water to the fire department? Well, again, I think it starts with culture. You need to have a leader who buys in. What I will say is that the resistance 
is there. There will always be resistance from the executive level for a few reasons. One is there's always the fear that people will mess with the system and try to take advantage of it. Now, I have my own opinions in that if I've got five officers that need help and one of them is just trying to screw me, I'm still going to give all five of them the help because that's four people that we're saving. But then the other thing is, is that right now we're at such a critical staffing shortage as a whole in the nation for law enforcement. Executives, chiefs, sheriffs, directors, they're just a little bit hesitant to do this because they know they have people who are going to have to take time off of work because of it. And that's going to put them even shorter. I know that's that's the dark underbelly that, that nobody will ever admit to, but that is a thing. So you have to be committed to doing this and doing it the very right way for the very right reasons. And knowing full well that you may cost yourself some employees, but ultimately it's the right thing to do because you don't want to keep that employee if it's going to be unhealthy or dangerous for them. And you sure as hell don't want to put them on the street where it's going to be dangerous for your citizens. It's a quandary to a certain degree, but I believe that if you do it right, it will pay off in the end. But again, the payoffs, because you can't quantify something that didn't happen. I can't quantify how many officers have not killed themselves because of what I've done. But we can quantify the ones that have. We have to be okay with the fact that we're never going to know that we made the difference. It's only going to look like we cost ourselves employees. But knowing what we did was the right way for the right reasons, that should be payment enough. And I hope that it's wearing off. And I, I do see a national trend, especially locally, of sheriffs and chiefs buying into this because, frankly, it helps with retention and hiring with this millennial age because they want to know that they're going to be taken care of. So I think that ultimately it will pay off. It's just going to take a little bit of time. It's just kind of incremental, I suppose, is, is the right word. I'm really thinking about this as a pay me now or pay me later mentality. In in the 80s, we closed down a, a lot of supports, a, a lot of uh, the asylums, the the hospitals, the, the things that were supporting people with very serious and persistent mental illness. And we were told that we were doing this because it would save money. Long and involved story there that we don't have time to get into. But the bottom line is we were going to close these centers, these resources, these hospitals, because we would save money. But we didn't really save money because all of those people became homeless. And now we have a a, a homeless population issue that, that is costing money. And many went to prison and jails, which going to prison and jail is very, very expensive. So we're spending the same amount of money, but the services are way worse. When you were talking, that's what I was thinking about. I was like, well, well, now, wait a minute. If they're off work because of a mental health issue, or they're off work because of a, a public relations scandal. Which one is worse? Isn't it costing the same amount of time, money, resources, and issues? And and in fact, wouldn't a public relations scandal be significantly worse and something that costs you time, resources, and money? Oh, absolutely. I think you're right on in the fact that you know everybody likes to look at things uh, from the from the George Floyd perspective on down. You've got the Freddie Grays. The, the Philando Castiles, the, just the absolutely horrible, horrible cases that make me sick to my stomach. But you get all the way down into some, some little video of an officer being absolutely rude or just showing pure anger on maybe a car stop or a citizen contact or, or just verbally mistreating somebody. That's going to blow up because that video is going to get out. And that officer who should have, who could have avoided that maybe had they had the mental health care, 
that officer could have taken the days off, got themselves better, come back to work feeling better, and possibly avoided that. But you get you get a video of you mother effing some poor citizen, you don't recover from that. You never come back from that. That will always follow you. And I think you're absolutely right. It's like an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I think that's changing, especially with the way that policing has had to change because of the number of eyes that are on them. And I think it's great because a cop that is being watched is a cop that is doing right, in my opinion. And if they're not, it's easier for us to remove them from our business. So policing as a whole is changing. Uh, but uh, the mental health aspect of it is absolutely correct in that it's worth it to me to pay the prevention than to try to, to find a cure later, which is just not going to be there. Sheriff Armbrister, thank you so much for being here. Now, uh, up until now, we've been talking about public policy and, and how this is just good public policy and how it will help officers and first responders be better officers and first responders. But before we end, though, does it make them happier employees? Is this initiative improving the quality of their lives outside of work? I do believe that that the needle is moving in the right direction. But again, we are undoing decades of get back in the saddle, you're the tough guy, or you're the man of the house, or you know, you're the one that's in charge. Don't let anybody tell you different. Well, that's just not the case anymore, but it's incrementally, and, and I think that the best help comes from within, where somebody comes back and says, you know what, I wasn't well, here's what I did, I went and got help, I feel so much better, you need to go and do it too. I think that we are definitely moving in the right direction, but it's just going to take a little bit of time. And I hope that, you know, by sharing my stories or, or even explaining what it is that we've done that we feel that has worked, I hope that that will help another agency or some other place to kind of figure it out and maybe even take the plunge if they're kind of thinking about trying some of these new initiatives. Did paying attention to your mental health improve your home life? Oh my gosh, yes. And not in the way that maybe some others, but, um, you know, my personal story, and I'll share it anytime anybody wants to hear, but what really kind of uh, turned me to get help was my wife. Um, so my wife and I, were high school sweethearts. We, we haven't spent but <laughs> a few minutes apart in our lives. And she came home from work one day and found me sitting on the couch. The TV wasn't on. There was, the radio wasn't on. I was just sitting there. And she said, she said, hey we got to do something. I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? And she said, I'm afraid that I'm going to come home from work someday and you're not going to be here. And I knew what she meant because I had had the same thought. She thought I was going to, I was going to be dead, whether it be because I had done something crazy at work and allowed myself to be killed or I'd taken my own life. And that was the moment where I realized that I had to get help, not just for me, but for her and for our two daughters. When I went and got sought the help that I needed, it, the two-year process played out, which ended with me going to a it's treatment, but it was called a retreat, the West Coast Post Trauma WCPR. And when I came back from that, I was able to to really explain where I had been because I'd been so closed off and isolated from all of them because I didn't want to burden them, you know, as as your dad said. But from that moment on, it just became a thing that we knew, you know, we all knew dad had this trouble and now he's back and you still can't make loud noises around dad because it'll freak him out. But we all know that he's better now and we can talk about it. And if I have a problem, I can go and ask him about it. And, and it just opened the doors for us to just be a family again and to, to be a unit, uh, to be a team 
but also to go out and because even my kids are like, hey, so-and-so at school, their dad or their mom is having trouble. It sounds like they're having a rough time or even the kid, they're having trouble. Do you know of anybody that you think could help them? And if I can't help them, I'll find somebody. So we've really opened a lot of avenues just within our family to talk about it. But on top of that, you know, my, my oldest daughter, she, she has had her own mental health struggles with her sexuality and just the way that she perceives the world and anxiety and, and that kind of stuff. And, but it just created this open dialogue to where we just worked through it. We didn't have to fight through all of the, well, what's going on? Nothing. I'm fine. What are you doing? What are you doing? What, what's wrong? We just went straight to the, there's a problem here. What is it? And she explained it. And then we got help. I feel like it's really improved my home life. Um, and I know for sure that there's been other people who have come to me after and said, you know, I, you saved my marriage, you saved my life kind of thing. So I know that it is, it, it is happening. <laughs> it's just very hard to quantify. Sheriff Armbrister, thank you. Thank you so much. If people want to learn more about you and about your, your initiatives, where can they find you online? Well, obviously the Douglas County Sheriff's Office, Douglas County, Kansas, we're here in Lawrence, the home of the Jayhawks. They can look us up. We're online. We've got our own website and everything. But the other thing is I've got an email that comes comes to me. That's just sheriff at dgso.org. Sheriff at dgso, Douglas County Sheriff's Office, dgso.org. And I love speaking with anybody. Um, I share my story with anybody that needs it if people do reach out. Thank you so much, Sheriff Armbrister. And thank you to all of our listeners. My name is Gabe Howard, and I am the author of Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations. I'm also an award-winning public speaker who could be available for your next event. Look, my book is on Amazon because everything is on Amazon, but you can get a signed copy with free show swag or learn more about me just by heading over to GabeHoward.com. Wherever you downloaded this episode, you can follow or subscribe to the show. It is absolutely free, and I would appreciate it. Here's another thing I would appreciate. Recommend the show. Share us on social media. Send an email. Send a text message. Sharing the show is how we grow. I will see everybody next Thursday on Inside Mental Health. You've been listening to Inside Mental Health, a Psych Central podcast from Healthline Media. Have a topic or guest suggestion? Email us at show at psychcentral.com. Previous episodes can be found at psychcentral.com slash show or on your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening.